There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about ice age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 219. And today on the show, I'm joined by outdoor writer and whitetail habitat consultant, Steve Bartilla. He's a tremendous resource, and today we're taking a deep dive into his whitetail habitat management principles and philosophies. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx Maps. And I guess this bears mentioning just a little bit extra today because we do have a new title sponsor, Onyx Maps, who's come on board in a big way to support Wired to Hunt and the rest of our team over at Meat Eater. And I'm pretty excited about this because Onyx Maps is actually a tool that I've been personally using for a long time now, well before they ever became any kind of partner. So very briefly, if you're not familiar, Onyx Maps has this hunting GPS app that provides some really impressive digital mapping features. Some of the most useful things that I found out there, and in particular as a whitetail guy who's always out there searching for new properties to hunt or new public land sections to explore, I really love that Onyx Maps shows all of the property lines and property owner information. This has just been hugely helpful for me as I go out and try to find new spots to hunt or when I'm planning out-of-state trips, both public and private. So over the coming months, I'll definitely be sharing some more insight into my experiences using this product. But for now, I just wanted to introduce you to what this company is all about and why you'll be seeing them on the show. And if you want more information, you can visit onyxmaps.com or search for Onyx Maps on whatever app store you use for your phone. And that's Onyx. That's O-N-X Maps. Now, As for today's show, like I mentioned at the top, we're joined by Steve Bartilla. 
and Steve is an outdoor writer who's been published in magazines such as North American Whitetail and Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine. He's also the host or co-host of several deer hunting TV and web shows. He's the author of a handful of books such as Big Buck Secrets and Whitetail Deer Management and Habitat Improvement. And it's that last topic that we're going to cover today with him, habitat management. And you might have noticed this spring, we've talked a pretty decent bit about habitat. We've actually had three different habitat management experts on the show here just over the last couple of weeks or months. Um, and what I think is cool now, after having chatted with all three of these guys, and other than Steve, the other two were Jeff Sturgis on episode 210 and Jake Elinger on episode 214, You know, after chatting with these guys, it, it became very quickly apparent to me, and anyone who's listened to this, that there are a million different ways to approach improving habitat for deer and wildlife. But just as it is with other aspects of deer hunting, there are a whole lot of different ways to skin this cat. But what all three of these folks had in common was that they have this really strong passion for and excitement for the animals and the land and for ways that we can both give back to the resource and also improve our hunting experience. And that's what I love about this whole habitat thing. You know, I'm fortunate that I have a couple properties where I am able to do some tinkering with the land, and that that has given me this really neat opportunity to more deeply get to know these properties and the local deer and then move around the pieces of the puzzle myself and, and, and see what happens. And I found that very, very interesting, very fascinating. You know, being an addict to the whole strategy element of deer hunting, being able to now adjust habitat, it just adds this whole new exciting layer to the hunting equation. But above and beyond all of that, you know, being able to do habitat work, I think at least, it offers this, this meaningful opportunity to engage with the land and animals in a different way. And, and I know I've mentioned this on some previous podcasts, so forgive me for being a broken record, but, but once you dive into this habitat work, it's, it's like this veil is taken off. Your eyes are open to this whole new world. And once you get into this stuff, you develop a whole new appreciation for and understanding of soil and sun and rain and plant life and all sorts of things like that. And I think, in my opinion, that just really enriches your experience as a hunter. And that's at least why this has been so compelling for me. Now, for all of you out there who don't have a property where you can manage habitat, you know, I, I can relate to that too, as as most of the rest of my properties that I hunt, I'm in the similar boat. I'm not able to manage any habitat. I'm not able to change things. But there's this whole other really interesting different type of strategy and challenge and excitement that's available with those kinds of hunts, you know, where it's all about understanding natural movements and how terrain and hunting pressure and all those things impact deer and how you hunt them. And I think even though you might not be able to take habitat improvement advice from a podcast like this and apply it directly to a property you own, you know, just exactly how they're talking about it, you might not be able to go take food plot information and use it to plant a food plot. You can still use many of the things we talk about in your own hunting by just better understanding what types of features or habitats deer prefer, prefer or different ways to approach your hunting strategy using some of these habitat or terrain focused ideas. You know, even without changing habitat, I think there's ways to put this stuff into play. Especially in today's episode, I think you're going to find some concepts and philosophies that can apply to really any deer hunting situation. Steve has been one of my very favorite guests on the podcast. He's been on twice before, back on episode 22 and episode 116. And if you haven't listened to those, I'd highly recommend you check them out. They're, like I said, 
two of my favorites, jam-packed with information, much more focused on hunting, timing your hunts, patterning deer, lots of stuff like that. Um, It's good stuff. But today, he brings it back. He's brought his A game. He did not disappoint. So that said, I guess without further ado, let's quickly thank our partners at Whitetail Properties, and then let's get to that interview with Steve. So this week, I wanted to call out a helpful resource put together by the land and deer and management experts over at Whitetail Properties, and that is their Land Beat video series on YouTube. Now, I've been mentioning this for a few weeks now, and today I wanted to call out another specific video that I recommend you check out. And this new video features the one and only Dr. Craig Harper, and he is one of the very most interesting and well-versed habitat experts in the country. And speaking of past podcast guests, he was on episode number 103, and it is amazing. So be sure to check that one out too. But in this video, he discusses the value of improving brushy fence rows and other small random areas on your property for wildlife by removing non-native grasses and encouraging the growth of other native forage that wildlife can actually benefit from. It's short, but sweet. And if you head over to the Whitetail Properties YouTube channel or just go on YouTube and search for the title, which is Maintaining Brushy Fence Rows, you should be able to find it. It's well worth a watch. And if you want more from Whitetail Properties, you can visit their website at whitetailproperties.com. And now, let's get to my conversation with Steve Bartilla. I really think you're going to enjoy it. I hope you do. So here we go. All right, I'm back here today with what is now his third appearance on the podcast, Steve Bartilla. Thanks for joining us again, Steve. Oh, hey, my pl- absolutely my pleasure, Mark. It's It's been, every time you've been on the show before, they've been some of my absolute favorites. I think uh, you do a really nice job of 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 helping people understand things in a in a language that makes sense and that people can actually apply to their to their real lives. So so I've always appreciated that about you, but on those past two episodes, we really focused on the hunting side of things. You know, I think that first episode was really all about patterning bucks and then the second episode we talked more about, you know, how to stack your odds from a hunting standpoint, you know, when to hunt, where to hunt, uh, you know, using trail cameras, thoughts on the rut, stuff along those lines. What we haven't really covered ever in much detail though is what we can do from a from a management perspective, whether it be habitat or actual herd management, things you can do, you know, in the off season to improve your hunting, things you can do during the season um, to impact future hunting seasons, and that's kind of what I want to talk about today. Um, since the last time we talked, I did read one of your books that covers this topic called Whitetail Deer Management and Habitat Improvement, and you covered a lot of really interesting stuff. I loved the visual approach you took to things with lots of diagrams. Um, so I'm kind of hoping that we can somehow articulate as much of what you covered in that book, or at least introduce some of those concepts, but we're going to have to do it with our voices. We can't do it uh, visually. So um, (laughs) I guess, excuse me, number one, does that sound like a good plan to you, Steve? It sure does. Okay. So the number two, what I'm curious about first, you talk about this a lot in your book and in some of the different video series you have. You talk about the importance of, before you get into any of these habitat projects, the, un- the importance of understanding and mapping your property, really having a good plan in place and, and maybe even a physical map in place. Can you talk about why that's important and, and, and how, you, how you do that? I sure will, but keeping with my tradition of our podcast, I'm going to take us off on a tangent. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, 
and that is he mentioned something in the in the build up here about you know making it so that this stuff is you know the audience can understand you know putting it in simple terms all that type of stuff we are we are blessed and cursed right now in that there's so dang much information out there and that is awesome the problem is is trying to figure out what information's good what information's bad right off the bat if we're talking hunting or if we're talking habitat improvement, if somebody's trying to make this stuff sound way too complex to understand, either they don't understand it or they're trying to sell you something. We're, we're talking, we're talking whitetails. We're talking, I hate to swear here, but we're talking simple animals. <laughs> you know, this stuff is not overly complex. If, as I said, every time somebody tries to make it so the first two thoughts to pop into my head is either you don't know what you're talking about or you're trying to make money off me. Because nothing, none of this stuff is overly complex. And once, once, you, once you see the picture, you know, and painting the picture isn't that hard. It actually, in this case, it all starts out with goals. Every one of us has... <clears throat> We're all the same in a lot of ways in that we're driven by whitetails. We want to make it our property. If we own, speaking of this specific topic, um, we want to go ahead and make our property as good as we can. If we own it or lease it and have control over it, if we don't, a lot of us, someday we want to. But we all have different goals. Now, the key to achieving goals in this, or frankly, in my humble opinion, life in general, figure out what it is you want first. Identify what your goals are. And that sounds silly, because especially in something like this, well, obviously all our goals are to raise the biggest, the most and biggest bucks we possibly can. No, that's not true. I, uh, I've actually sold this business now a couple years back, but I did uh, I did habitat evaluations slash plans for clients based off of aerial photos. I did a whole bunch of those. I'll tell you what, the goals are all, I mean, the, George has got, George is 58 years old. He's starting to have grandkids, and, man, he wants a place for his grandkids to play. And, yeah, if they can go ahead and kill some big bucks, awesome, but really, he wants a place for them to go ahead and be able to goof around on, have fun. I, we I, just to make darn sure I don't miss this. Now, one of the biggest myths in all this stuff is you have to have deep pockets and you have to have sprawling, sprawling acres of ground to make any kind of difference in habitat improvement. Baloney. You hear about the stuff that costs money because I mean. I have to be preaching the choir here with you, Mark. We're, we hear about the things that cost money because this is a business. You know, the hunt, like it or not, the outdoor industry is an industry. You know, the magazines, the TV shows, all these places need money flowing in, and <clears throat> um, or they cannot they cannot present their message. Okay. Well, you know what. There's not a lot of companies that, that produce a simple handsaw that are sponsors of this stuff. You can do an awful lot with this handsaw. You go out, you get a chainsaw, you can do a heck of a lot more. You know, there, there's all sorts of stuff that we can do. 
that doesn't have to cost us hardly anything. Hey, I'm one of the biggest things I'm doing this time of year, well, all times of year is bending down licking branches. But it all begins with identifying your goals. Okay, if I know what my goal is, now in in virtually anything in life, now I can backtrack and how lay out a plan and how to achieve that goal. Is it going to go that nice and smooth and simple and easy? Heck no. You know, I go ahead and try to try to live by live by the credo of being rigidly flexible. <laughs> no, I, like I, that. I got a plan. <laughs> I've got a plan, but man, when my plan starts going south, you know what? I'm going to figure out a different way of. I'm going to figure out a different approach. I'm going to change stuff up. Now, um, <clears throat> so first, figure out what it is you want, and they have to be realistic wants. If you own a uh, if you own a twenty in northern Wisconsin, odds are you're not going to be you're not going to be setting that up to kill booners. Now, I geez, maybe once in your life you'll have the opportunity to kill a booner, and when you do, awesome. If you're if you're down in Florida, you're not setting your ground up to manage for hundred and sixty inch bucks. It, once in a lifetime, maybe. But you have to have realistic expectations. Part of the way you figure out what your realistic expectations is is what what's going on around you. If if the biggest bucks in your county, <clears throat> that's what is consistently being drugged from your county as the biggest bucks. That's about the best you're going to hope for, and that's awesome. That is that is awesome, but. If your area is producing consistently, the top end is 120 to 130, and there's a lot of areas out there to stick on my tangent deal. The worst gauge of how good a hunter is is what they put down for inches because, you know what, there's a lot of areas where, heck, you don't have a 130-inch buck. And it's real hard to kill a 130-inch buck when it isn't there. Yeah. Um, but... Go ahead, look around the area. What, what is this area consistently producing for a top end? That's my goal. A- am I going to be able to kill, to draw and kill the top end deer every single year onto my ground? No, but that's going to be my goal because that I can achieve at least a percentage of the time. Um, <clears throat> then learn your habitat. You have to know what you have on that ground before you ever start making improvements. One of the biggest mistakes I think so many of us make, I know I made when I first started, is, okay, I got me a bag of seeds, where can I slap it? Now, if you take that approach, odds of that being the best place to to put in a food plot really aren't that good. How are you going to get to that location? How are you going to hunt that location? How are you going to get out without deer knowing you're there? Because one of the biggest things that I, me personally, I'm trying to do, whether it used to be when I was setting up these plans for clients or now I do uh, um, long-term consulting for a handful of people each year, you want to manufacture high-odds, low-impact stand locations because we can hunt the snot out of our grounds. As long as the deer don't know we're there, 
But that doesn't happen. That does not happen naturally, hardly at all. So what you do is you look at your ground. How can I access it? What areas can I get to and get out of without messing anything up? And now, how can I go ahead and lay out a deer flow? A gen- when I'm talking deer flow, I do not mean that every deer on this property is going to do what I'm going, what I'm trying to convince them to do every single time. That's not going to occur. What we're going to do, though, is we're going to encourage them to flow through our property in a way that takes them by high, high odds, low impact stands, and wastes their time on our ground. But the way you do that is you start first by identifying what am I really trying to trying to achieve? Because if I'm that guy who wants his grandkids playing out on my ground, that doesn't mean that I can't hunt it and have great hunting too. That means that I need a division of church and state. This area over here, the area that isn't that great for deer, oh heck, they can ride ATVs around here, they can shoot squirrels, they can go rabbit hunting, they can be stupid kids playing out in the woods just like I was. And I'll tell you what, that is some dang precious time for a kid. But this area over here, we leave that area alone. And now, because we happen to have this, this, the neighbor has a 20-acre field, and we have woods that butts up against it, okay? and there happens to be a nasty, nasty erosion ditch running from the edge of his field down into a, the creek that goes through our property, okay, on that side hill along our property line. Well, geez, if that ditch is tough enough that the deer can't cross, that's a funnel right there. And you're going to be pushing most of the deer down to the bottom or wrapping the tip because crossing that erosion cut is too tough for them, assuming it's a nasty, nasty erosion cut. Okay, well, hmm, I want them to be walking along that edge quite a bit because I can pop just five, six, ten yards into the woods and I'm hunting those deer that are wrapping that tip. And so if I can get them to flow that way, geez, I just went ahead and manufactured a pretty darn high odds, low impact stand. I'm five yards in the woods, and I might as well be hunting the center of my woods. But I've got the wind blowing over to the out into the neighbor's field. I can hunt that stand over and over and over and over and over again, as long as I stick to the wind, you know, and ha- and slip just barely inside inside the the um, wood line down my property line to pop into that sand. Now, all that type of stuff begins by identifying what your goals are, studying your ground, figuring out what you've got that you can take advantage of, and then you can take it another step. And that is, what don't the neighbors have? What do the neighbors have? What don't they? Take inventory of that. Because if, and not every, not every property is set up well for this, but if, if your goal is to get deer to spend a disproportionate amount of time on your ground, I need to pause there for a second. What does disproportionate amount of time on your ground mean? It means that they're spending more time, if you own a 40, they're spending more time on that 140 of their home range than they are on every, any other 40s on their home range. Does that mean they're going to leave? Of course they're going to leave, but the more time, unless you put up a high fence, but the more time they spend on that property during daylight, 
the higher the odds of you being able to get the shot and or actually get this animal another year because you don't want the neighbors as long as that's a legal deer they have every right in the world to shoot that animal if it once it jumps the fence whether you decide to pass it or not that is their right and if they shoot it they deserve nothing but our praise because the stuff is supposed to be fun we don't have i don't have the right to impose my will on every other hunter out there Mm -hmm. um but Getting them to spend that disproportionate amount of time on our property helps me control things, but it sure isn't a high fence. All right. Um, So how do you get deer to spend a disproportionate amount of time on your property? You give them better food, better water, better cover, better feeling of security and better comfort than they can get anywhere else in the area, and they're going to spend more time there. It's an extremely sounds extremely difficult and extremely labor intensive and it can be to to a certain extent but i'm telling you right now if you're not enjoying this stuff you might want to find a better different hobby (laughs) this this stuff is supposed to be fun yeah don't look at it don't look at it as a race just sit there and pick away at it because you know what five years especially these days Five years seems like forever away, but and I'm not going to get a lick. I'm not going to get a lick of production out of those fruit trees. And then I planted some some uh, mass tre- some oak trees, and then I went ahead and threw in a couple dungston chestnuts as well. I'm not going to get a lick of use out of that for probably five years. But if I don't do it today, where am I in five years? I'm the neighbor that's sitting there complaining that the other neighbor's got all the deer. Yeah. So, so Steve, you've got all these different things you just mentioned, right? If we're trying to, if, if our goal is to have deer spend a disproportionate amount of their time on our property and, you know, let's, let's take my goals, for example, I'm, I'm hoping that I can get mature bucks to spend a disproportionate amount of their time on my small property. So in that case, when I'm now looking at the scenario you just painted, which is okay to do that, we need, Food, cover, security, um, and then Here, you can. Well, do, do you mind me hijacking this for a second? Sure, sure. Let's talk. If if you're comfortable with it, let's talk about your ground. Because by talking about your ground, now we can go ahead and apply this to a bunch of other properties out there. Yeah. To your so tell me, how big is your property? Okay, so so let's let's talk about this property that I'm working on right now. My family has a 40 acre property in northwestern michigan okay is uh okay what's the what's the hunting pressure like around you so the hunting pressure around it to to two sides of it is moderate and towards the back of it is is almost none because on the front side of the property it butts up to some private land where there's a handful of hunters on the back side of the property it butts up to a very very large piece of public land that's far from a road so hard to get to in its deep swamp, big cover, kind of big woods type terrain. Awesome. Awesome, awesome. Um, and the reason that it's not hunted very hard is just way too much of a pain to get that far back in through all that junk. Exactly. And there's just low hunters up in this part of the country relative to, or this part of the state relative to other areas because deer populations are relatively lower too. So people aren't heading up there as much as they used to. Okay. Um, and this is not, I know there's one area of, 
uh, Michigan that's called Club Country because there's a great big chunk. This is not that area. Not that area. No, I think that part is more in the UP or central northern part. This is the northwestern part of the lower peninsula. Okay. All right. Um, So you've got 40 acres. The idea of being able to hold, uh, and I know in many cases here I'm going to be preaching the choir mark. I'm just going into this level of detail because everything's brain surgery until you hear it once. Yeah, and there's certainly people who, who don't know this stuff. So, so yeah, let's cover it all. Um, so right off the bat, now, a mature buck's home range is, well, it is going to go ahead. We're talking pure averages here. Um, it's going, uh, home range is, is the area that a mature buck lives in throughout his, from the time he disperses as my definition, from the time he disperses as a year and a half old, mom kicks him out. So to keep the gene pool strong, he averages according to radio telemetry studies, relocating one to 10 miles away. Now, when he sets up shop after that yearling buck dispersal, his average home range is about 640 acres. It's going to increase and decrease um, in size based on, frankly, what the habitat has to offer to a very, very large extent. Um, As I said, every deer, every buck has one home range, so that home range has to give them absolutely everything they need, or they're going to die, now, because they don't know what's outside of that home range. That said, they have many core areas, or potentially many core areas within that home range. A core area is just the area that at that, at that given time, they're spending the majority of their time. Now, what I specifically zero in on is when it comes to management is daylight core areas. We can't hunt at night. So right off the bat, I'm focused on far more, what are these bucks do, doing during daylight? Potentially, you can get one to two mature bucks to set up home range core areas on your ground, okay, on a 40. Here's the catch, though. You've got to offer them the best of everything. Mm-hmm. Those swamps... I'm I'm betting you can't touch that for betting. Now, without with in, as I said, take for your ground, take all this with a grain of salt because I haven't looked at it. Mm-hmm. Odds are pretty darn good that you're not going to be able to, you're not going to be able to match or exceed the quality of betting that that swamp has. Right. Yeah. And at the same time, <clears throat> at the same time, if I'm you, I don't care. I'm looking at that. I, I'm I'm happy. <laughs> No problem. Great. Because what I'm really going to do is I'm going to focus in your situation on creating a buck trap. And that is they have all this ground out here that they can live on. And it is swampy. It is nasty ground that, you know what, is is any other hunters ever going to drag bucks out of there? Yeah, you're going to have some happen. But you know as well as I do that, I'll tell you what, that's, that's too much work. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're we're a couple of the idiots that actually do go back into situations like that. Not. Yeah, yeah. And, and it is good and great until you kill something, <laughs> and then all of a sudden you really start questioning what you're doing way the heck back here. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and nut jobs like us, we do it again <laughs> and again and again. But a lot of people are not. A lot of people. 
that's not fun for them. For, as I said, I hope you don't mind me continually calling you and I nut jobs. For us, it is. Oh, yeah. I'm right there with you. <laughs> but for most people, that's not, for most hunters, going ahead and dragging a pair of waders with you, having to change, and I'm actually thinking of a public land buck I killed doing just this, having to go ahead and switch in and out of those waders three times to get to that spot, an honest mile and a half back in, they aren't going to do that. So you have, outside of the exception of the nut jobs like us, you don't have people that are backdooring you in that situation. Take that, use it. So I wouldn't, what I would be focusing, so this is more of a, more of a big woods swampy area, correct? Yeah, yeah. So you've got to to give you just a little bit more detail. So this is, yeah, where you have all that cover, all that potential bedding area, okay, um, in an area where you don't have a ton of candy crops. I can all but promise you, your best road is to focus on having some does bed up around your food, laying this food out so that when Mister Big comes from that swamp to check your girls or get some food that odds are really high they're going through this one or two or three pinch points on that 40. And on a 40, in a situation like this where you can go ahead and remodel their world, you can set it up so that pretty much every deer that comes, every buck that cruises, either into your ground for food or for girls, you can go ahead and do some pretty significant rearranging and make it so they are going through here, here, or here. Now, go ahead and put two, three stand sites for each of those locations for various wind directions. Lay them out so that, as I said, I'm guessing you don't have that natural funnel. No worries if you don't. The overwhelming majority of people don't have funnels like that on their 40s. Right. But I'll tell you what. Bulldozers are not very expensive to rent. They really aren't. You can get. A, I mean, you in one day for a thousand bucks, you can get a ridiculous amount of stuff done on that forty acres that is going to pay for itself over and over and over and over. And I don't want to say this to try to, you know, but I'm going to. You know what? People are out there spending a thousand bucks a year on bows for crying out loud. Now, there are guys out there, and God love them, guys and girls out there that are buying a new bow every stinking year. Now, all a person has to do is skip one one year, and you know what? They can get an awful lot of darn stuff done in that on their ground for for a thousand bucks. Yeah. So so let me let me hit pause real quick. And, yep. and take us back because I want to understand your thought process here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I understand it, but just so everyone else does, yeah. when you, yep. when we talk, when I described my property and then you said, oh, oh yeah. So then we want to focus on food. So what I would, would love for you to expand on a little bit is how you 
make that decision? Like, how do you determine the order of operations? If you if you think back to like our old math problems back in the day when we used to do had to do kind of long form math, we had this order of operations when you're figuring out algebra and stuff. You determine, okay, I have to do food first, and then I could worry about access, and then I could worry about water or whatever this order might be. How do you prioritize the different pieces of the habitat puzzle you need to focus on? Um, like you started to do here on my property. Can you describe just how other people can be thinking through that? Sure, Ken. It really starts, for me, it 100% starts with bedding. If you, if you study deer long enough, especially if you study how deer react on specific properties long enough, what you see is it's a repeating cycle. You know, deer do not have the power to analyze things like humans do. Deer have Deer are very instinctual. They have great senses of uh, <clears throat> they have great senses in many cases better than ours. Okay? But they don't have the power of analytical thought. They are they are a product of their environment, what mom taught them, and their instincts. Because of that, every deer is different, but they all tend to share certain traits and. <clears throat> One of the things you notice, I, I am 90% sure we talked about this in one of the other ones, podcasts, is that when Mr. Big, especially, especially in heavily hunted areas, now, how does Mr. Big get old? He gets old because he figured out how to survive. Okay? If he figured out how to survive, that means that the next year in line now, is probably going to probably going to stick pretty darn tight to those that, that survives is going to stick pretty darn tight to what the previous deer did or their dad um you you really see that play out in bedding areas you know when you and i, I know i've said this um when you find that buck bed that, that lone bed in the middle of winter when you're out there scouting in the snow you know, maybe it's got a pea spot in the middle of it, but I'm sorry. I, the idea that every time a buck stands, every time a buck is bedding, they urinate as soon as they stand up. I don't buy that. Um, <clears throat> they may take a step forward. They may take a step back. Who knows? So that pea spot doesn't really, I'm sorry, I even got into that. Um, but you know, you, there's a big rub there. There's no other different size beds around. You know what? Odds are fairly decent that's a buck bed. Okay. Not a guarantee, but pretty decent. Now you go over to over to the next ridge, and here's a whole bunch of different size beds in the snow. Odds are pretty darn good that those are that's a family group bedding area. Does, fawns, young bucks. Okay, squat down in each of them. Look around. Ask yourself why out of every place is this animal bedding here? Okay, for does for the family groups, good luck. Um, they aren't anywhere near as picky. For the bucks, you do that 10, 12 times, and you start seeing patterns emerge. And then you do it year after year after year, and you find that the same buck, or the most mature bucks, are bedding in the same general locations on the same grounds every year. It's because that bedding area has something that is superior. By doing the squats in these beds, what you notice is either it's thick and nasty, to the point where absolutely nothing's sneaking up on you. You can use wind direction to cover one area. Your ears are covering the rest. And you can, I mean, heck, two jumps in any direction, you're vanished. Okay? That's a common scenario. Another common scenario, and that's 
what no doubt you're dealing with on you on the, with that swamp. Mm-hmm. Awesome, awesome protective cover bedding, or nothing sneak. I mean, do you think you can slosh through that swamp without something hearing you come? Likely not. Probably not. Yeah. Um, the other really, really common example is based on topography. That ooh, that knob at the end of the ridge. Hell, heck, that bulge going off the side. Now, some place where I can lay right here and I can see everything down below me. I can have the wind. I'm not saying they always do this, but I can have the wind going over the ridge, protecting my backside, my eyes going ahead and scanning for the front. Good luck beating a spot like that. It, it's it's really really tough. Okay, um, to go ahead and try to get those deer, those bucks specifically, the does are easy, but get those bucks that are bedding in that swamp to bed on your forty. Yeah, that, that's pushing that's pushing a rock uphill, because that swamp most likely has. The advantages when it comes to bedding and at the same time these deer are trained that this is where I want to be because they've seen they've seen their the older bucks do that now it gets to be it's it's hard to break training and now I've been bedding here for a while I'm, I feel safe this works for me I'm surviving does that kind of answer you that's why I start with bedding yeah, yeah. The very, the very first, well, the very first thing I start with is goals. Okay, um, figure out goals, and then the next question in my mind is, how if it is trying to get deer to spend as much time on your property as possible? Now, well, geez, if I can't, then the next question is, is will they bed there? Okay, if I believe that that's going to be tough, then okay, well, what's the next thing we can do? Well, the next thing. Geez, especially in big woods, food's king, baby. Mm-hmm. Now, you offer when look at look at what's in least supply in the area. Hey, based on what you described to me, we're talking about a heck of a lot of timber and swamp. Well, that means that there probably isn't a heck of a lot of egg in that area. There might be some, no doubt, but not a tremendous amount. Yep. But there's a heck of a lot of cover. Hmm. That means that I could focus on bedding and ha- and hope that I could draw some deer over here, but they've got a surplus of bedding everywhere. Or, hmm, if they're short on food and I can offer them brassicas and I can offer them cereal rye and I can offer them some fruit trees and I can throw some clover out there, all of a sudden it's not going to be real hard for me to offer a whole bunch of food that they can't get other places. And I offer a whole bunch of food they can't get other places. I can all but promise you that at least at times during the season, I'm going to have a ridiculous number of deer on my ground for that area. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really, it's really start with goals, and then figure out. Okay, as I said, are these realistic? Mark, I hate to tell you, it's probably not realistic for you to get a buck to spend a disproportionate amount of daylight time on that 40. Yeah. He's going to be spending that disproportionate amount of daylight time back in that swamp. But that doesn't mean you can't can't give him a really good reason to make it the very first place he he goes when he gets up. Mm -hmm. Because you got really good food. 
and now we start getting into the rut, and, geez, I'm going to be hanging around Mark's place an awful lot because he's got food, water, and girls. Mm-hmm. What more do I want? <laughs> so the trick for Mark is to set his ground up so he does have food, water, and girls and take it a step further and set it up so that as Mr. Big flows through that property to check it for does, to go for food, that there's a really, really good chance he's going to go through here. Yeah. So so tell me this, Steve. And, and I think I either read about this in your book or saw you talk about this in a video somewhere. But you had mentioned that before planning food, so if we're if we're focusing now, okay, yes, on my property, food is going to be that that lever I can pull and get an extra big boost of impact. If food is what I want to do now, I read somewhere that you said before planting any food, at least if you plan on using this to hunt in any way, you should first think about tree stand locations or things like access or different things there. Can you can you tell me, A, is that is that right? Do you think about access and locations before you actually think about where to put a food plot or how to plant a food plot? And then if so, can you tell me why? Tell me how that helps. Yep. Yes, with one caveat. And that is there's certain places that, uh, I, heck, I'm going to be leaving for there pretty much as soon as I hang up. There's uh, one property that I'm doing management on right now that has has a big bottom. Planted in food. That has nothing to do with hunting. That has to do one, I mean, you can't, it's the bottom, you're going to have swirling winds. It's 100% surrounded by deer cover. Heck, deer are bedding 360 degrees around there. Could I go ahead and make it so they didn't bed there? I could, but it'd pretty much take clear cutting their woods. um, You're not going to be able to get into that bottom to hunt. But they have, uh, this person here controls about 120 acres, and they're surrounded by meat hunters, and God love those meat hunters, and I could not be being more sincere when I say that. Um, The day I have to get off on a very brief tangent, but you know what? When we sit there and we are complaining about each other and we are slamming each other for their choice of weapon for all this stuff, all we're doing is the anti's job for them, whether we want to or not. You know, our hunting numbers are dwindling. They're not increasing. You know, every single person we drive from this sport is we're cutting off our own nose to spite our face. Uh, but God love the meat hunters around them. And they have every right in the world to do what they want on legally on their side of the fence just like I have every right to legally do what I want on my side of the fence. So that that bottom is planted 100% in food merely, merely to suck deer to the center of that property. So in that case, if there there are situations where what I'm about to describe does not apply, when you're using food strictly for holding purposes, okay, to get them to waste more time on your ground. Otherwise, I've learned the hard way, before you ever start breaking dirt, before you ever bring in a bulldozer to clear out a in-woods plots, and I'm telling you, look into those dozers. They are so much cheaper than people realize and so much more effective. But before you go ahead and have somebody come out, you find the stand, the tree you're going to put that stand up in. 
you figure out, as I said, when we first started talking, you know, one of the first things you do on your ground is you figure out what areas you can get to, what areas you can hunt and get the heck out of without educating deer. One of the biggest things we do as hunters, one of the biggest, in my opinion, mistakes we make is we, when we're trying to manage property, is we hunt way too darn much of it. Look at that, uh, look at that area of public ground that butts up against you. Once deer season starts, where are most of the deer? I'm, I, without ever having stepped foot out there, I'm guessing they ain't, they're not right around those parking areas. Mm-hmm. Because those, par- those parking areas right around there, they get hunted. So what do the deer do? They shift to areas of their home range where they feel safe once they start feeling pressure. They don't leave that home range, but as I said, it's 640 acres, and it's not laid out in a square. It's more like a python that's, that swallowed a medicine ball, a couple volleyballs, a softball, and another medicine ball. Twisted, all sorts of... But add that whole entire python up, and it equals about 640 acres. But it twists and turns all, all over, bulge here, narrow there, to achieve their needs. Okay, um... And somehow I lost where the heck I was even going with all that. <laughs> well, can, can you can you give us a little Let me more? Take me back on course, buddy. Yeah, yeah. So so back to when we have those these prospective food plot plans, and we're thinking through. Okay, picking those stand locations first, picking the access points, and you were describing a lot of that. And I I, I kind of encourage you to go off on another tangent when it comes to access, because like you mentioned so important and i've 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 seen where you've talked about thinking about edge access versus central access and that you prefer you know planning your access routes from the outside in versus the opposite way can you can you talk about that a little bit and then how that might fit into what i'm talking about here in my 40 acre piece too yeah um and i actually was able to connect a few of the dots that i left out there for myself um but what i was getting at is you have 640 acres okay that six, they, they know that 640 like the back of their hand because that's where they live. 365, uh, 364 days a year, they're, they're living there. 65, I think, actually. Jeez, can't even remember how many days are in a year right now. Uh, <laughs> but um, they're living there. They know that. So they know those areas that don't have pressure. You want that area to be your ground. And you do that by hunting less of it than, rather than hunting more. The more your property you hunt, the less you're leaving for deer to feel safe. Okay. Um, and now set me back on course. I'm sorry. Yes. Okay. So that all makes sense about that deer home range and, and hoping that now that, you know, part of my 40 might intersect with his home range of 640 acres or so. Um, now, how can access, good access, fit into that to make it feel like your property isn't being overhunted, to make those deer feel safe on it? And, you know, how does access filter your factor into the equation when you're thinking about where to put food as well? And this, it all goes back to trying to keep, give deer the illusion of safety on your property so that those, those, is I tried, and I hope that this is coming through sincere because it couldn't be more sincere. As I've tried to hammer, that neighbor has every right in the world to shoot whatever legal deer he wants or she wants. 
And you know what? We really should be nothing but happy for them. That said, as they're pummeling their ground, as they're going out there the day before season opens and going to scout their 80 acres and they're whipping around out there, you know what? I want them pushing deer to my ground. And how do you accomplish that? You accomplish that by making them feel safe on that ground, by hunting from those low-impact locations. If that deer does not see, smell, hear, you, you're not there as far as they're concerned. Um, <clears throat> so what works out very nicely for trying to accomplish that is take your ground, your 40. Hmm, I've got two choices. I can go on on your specific 40, where this is hypothetical, obviously. I can go right through the center of this ground to access my stands. Or I can go along the edge of my ground to access my stands. If I go through the center, what what wind direction isn't blowing into a huge part of my property? There is none. If I go, <clears throat> but if I, so what ends up happening so often for hunters is they go ahead, they show up to their hunting ground, they hunt it the first day, oh man, this is great, they hunt it the second day, this is pretty good, they hunt it the third day, well, this ain't bad, hunt it the fourth, where are all the deer? Now, it doesn't take that many times to explode a 40-acre chunk of dirt to turn it pretty much worthless for, for deer activity right then, to, well, right. not you know, to put a serious ding to the amount of deer hunt activity that occurs in that ground. Now compare that to, you know, taking that 40 and having edge access. As a matter of fact, when you're going down the west side of that property, you know, hey, well, here, well, let's make it even simpler. On 40s like yours, if I can design it exactly the way I want, the wind direction is, tell, is answering what part of the property I'm hunting that given day. Because if I have edge access on a 40, I'm going to make it so that whenever I'm accessing that property, that wind is either blowing down the property line or it's blowing into the neighbors. Because I want the deer to believe that this ground that I control is safe. And by blowing that scent down the line or into the neighbor's ground, it's not blowing into mine. You know, and then you can go ahead and even take it a step further and do what I call uh, edge feathering. And so you hinge cut, you hinge cut a band of trees. Hinge cutting is, and please, anybody listening to this, don't go out and do this if you're not exceptionally comfortable with chainsaws. Frankly, you, know, you can do it all with a handsaw. Okay, follow all chainsaw safety rules, all that good stuff. We're just talking deer hunting. It's not worth going home without a leg, or an arm, or worse yet, making your kids orphans. You know. Remember, this, a lot of this stuff is dangerous. It, don't push it. Um, but you can't, hinge cutting is cutting, <clears throat> what I do is cut about half to 60% of the way through a tree, bend the darn thing over. Okay. Now it retains that, the top retains that connection to the root system. So, so a percent of those trees are going to continue to grow, only now all that canopy is down there, at, down there right on ground level for deer both for cover and for food. Go ahead and stick to trees no bigger than your bicep, and you don't got much to worry about. If the, if the timber 
works for, what you can do is you can go ahead and edge feather, hinge cut, about a five yard wide band on your property side of that access trail now. So what ends up happening is <clears throat> I've got this access trail going down my property line. The wind is either blowing down my property line or into the neighbors. At the same time, on my property line, on my property side of this trail, I've got a five-yard <clears throat> wide band of hinge cut. Okay. That's creating a screen so the deer within my timber can't see me as I'm going down that line. At the same time, neighbors that are setting up on the fence line can't see in anywhere near as good which they have every right to set up on the fence line, they don't have a right to shoot into my ground. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but now, simply by using the wind, I can make it so that the wind is, except for swirls, never blowing into my ground. And at the same time, those neighbors over there, they're running around their property, and man, they're ruining the hunting for this area. No, they aren't. Not if, not if the deer think my 40 safe. They're not ruining my ground at all. Instead, I've just took those people that have been working against my goals, and now they're working towards my goals by kicking up deer. Because every time they kick up deer on their ground, they're training them that, hey, you're not safe over here. But every time they're coming on my ground, they're not smelling me, they're not seeing me, they're not hearing me. I'm not there. You're safe here. And that it, access has a huge, huge impact when it comes to that. Because if you're going down the center of your property and you're hunting it on every single wind direction, you know what? It's only a matter of time before every single deer on that ground knows that, you know what, I'm not safe over here either. Maybe I should go over to Gertrude's place because she doesn't let anybody hunt on that ground at all. That kind of connect the dots somewhere in there for you? Yeah, yeah, it does. So let's 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 continue down with this line of thought now. So we've... We figured out, okay, this, this property, this area has got tons of bedding cover, so food is going to be where I can have that impact. We've talked about making sure that we have smart access into the spots we might want to hunt. So now we've decided we want to plant some food. We're going to plant it in a place that's easy to access. What else should we be thinking about when choosing what to plant or you know the shape of that plot? Anything when it comes to what we need to be thinking about just before actually digging in and, and putting something in there now? So we, we, know this is, we know we can get to this area. We know we can get out of it. We know that we have a potential safe wind direction. Now, it, it's blowing over into this wet the area of the swamp that has standing water where they can go ahead and walk this peninsula over just a couple hundred yards to the other side. You know, keep with dry feet, whatever some type of an what I call dead zone. What you can do, and actually I do more than I care to, uh, is actually manufacture safe zones as well. You know, be creative when it comes to this type of stuff. You can go in there and you can knock down a bunch of trees, which is a waste if, they're, if they have any timber value to them, but you can make a mess to the point where deer don't want to go through here. You call this okay. a tornado zone, right? Yep. Exactly. Uh, but one way, shape, or form, you have to be able to get to this location without getting busted. You have to be able to hunt this location, meaning I need a safe wind direction from hunting, and I need to be able to get out of here. That doesn't happen easy. So 
that's why you start with what areas can I access. All right, now, this area here, oh, and I go ahead and remove a few trees here. I can put a food plot in over here. All right, where would my stand be? I can go ahead and put a stand up in this tree right here, have it blow into that, that wet area with, a, with any type of a southeast or south wind, this area over here. Oh, geez, I could use this, too, because this goes up against, uh, <clears throat> this goes up against a nasty creek, you know, real high creek crossing there, or creek bank, you know, something, some type of a barrier, or I'm going to create a tornado zone. So now I've got a, got a place where I can hunt with another wind direction that works with my edge access as well. All right. So I go ahead and I select those, specifically select the trees first. Now, how can I lay this plot out to make it safe? Err. You know, um... <clears throat> For example, where I have the stand, I want, might want that to be a bend, a bend in the food plot, because that may potentially increase the amount of the safe wind cone I can hunt the stand with. It might be able to stretch that cone out a little bit more. The, there, it's a really tough thing to answer with specifics, because there, so much of this habitat stuff is one part art, one part science. There is not that this is the size and shape that this food plot should be. No, the food plot should be sized and shaped to try to achieve my goals. This is just, for example, you know what, you're doing this 50 yards in from a big egg field. And you're, what you're trying to do is you're going to bring a dozer in here, you're going to open up a quarter acre spot, <clears throat> plant some food. You're not counting on that food being the primary food source. Actually, really what you're doing is you're going to go ahead and slap a whole, whole bunch of licking branches out in that. <clears throat> Make sure that there's a whole bunch of licking branches around that food plot. Heck, you might even cut and plant a scrape tree out in the middle of it. You're trying to create this into a staging hub, a social hub of sorts. Okay? So there, that situation... <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, in that situation, the food plot size and the amount of food that's being produced, uh, as long as it's green and it can withstand browsing and the deer like it, I'm cool. You know, I'm probably either going with cereal rye or um, <clears throat> Antler King's Trophy clover in there, or, or whatever clover. Um, that's just what I'm using. So, uh, but I wasn't trying to do a sales pitch there, actually. Uh, <clears throat> Now, take that in a different way, take, put that in your situation. Your situation, you don't have a big, you don't have the neighbor's great big egg field to take advantage of for a destination food source. Correct. So, that means if you want deer to be coming to your ground for food, you need production. You need acreage. So, therefore, I'm going if to, I'm, if I'm setting up your ground, I'm going to focus a lot more on, okay, I mean, geez, there's probably, I'm going to guess here, there's probably 15 deer per square mile up in this area. I'm sucking a whole bunch of them in. You know what? I, I'm probably going to be feeding. I'm probably going to be feeding on the low side 20 deer here. That means I need some acres to put into food if I want to pull this off overseas. Um. <clears throat> 
so that situation is going to be very different than the one I just described. There, there isn't that remain originally flexible. It's really what it comes down to on so much of this. Yeah. One of the one of the biggest challenges for trying here, I'll share a little bit of personal stuff with you. Right now in my career, the reason that I am focusing more on this more on this type of stuff than I ever did in my work before is because it is so incredibly diverse and challenging. You know, the, the uh, cookie cutter approach just does not work. It just doesn't work when it comes to this type of stuff because every single pe- person's ground is different. So ultimately, <clears throat> ultimately, everybody who's doing this, excuse me one second, ultimately everyone who's doing this is actually playing mad scientists on their ground. <laughs> the catch is there isn't one formula to do it. What And, and that's why... The, the book you read, that, that's why I tried to lay it out in the way I did, is that here are a whole bunch of tools you guys can use. Because ultimately, and here are some here are some general philosophies on, well, here are some very specific philosophies on exactly how I set up this property, this property. I don't know, I think I got a dozen of them in there. But there's a reason that there's a dozen different properties or more in that book, and that's because... There just isn't one way to skin this cat. You can have two people with identical goals, you know, each of them with a 40 separated by nothing more than a fence line, and odds are that the best route for both of them isn't the exact same thing because both of their habitat's different. Their access is different. Little things like that make it so that you just you just can't lay out a cookie cutter approach, and that is why spending that time up front and really studying your ground, really honestly answering what is it that I want to accomplish here. Now, before you go, then educate yourself on the tools that are available because there's all sorts of tools, and quite frankly. You know, in on shows and in magazines and even in most books, you know, a lot of them aren't even covered because, well, frankly, a lot of people writing about this stuff don't do it. Um, and, you know, again, going back to money in the industry, you know, you don't you don't make money for writers, TV shows, or outlets by talking about chainsaws. You make money by talking about food plots. Um, but go ahead, educate yourself on what's available out there, and then play mad scientist for yourself, but really lay this stuff out and think to yourself, I need to create, I want to create a deer flow that works towards my goals and minimizes my weaknesses. In your situation, you know, the weaknesses, you don't want the deer jumping the fence to the neighbors. (laughs) You said, if I recall correctly, you said there were a couple neighbors that uh, that do hunt pretty aggressively up in there. You know, yep, on one side of the property, yep. So I'm guessing you don't want them jumping that side of the fence. Yeah. So you know what? You really don't want to put bedding right up against the fence over there, do you? Correct. Because the first thing that happens when they wake up, they got to choose which way to go. And yeah. Nine times out of ten, they're choosing to go into your property to get that food. But that tenth time, 
when they jumped the fence on November 3rd, and Ted happens to be sitting up in that tree over there, he's going to shoot that buck when he walks by, and more power to him, buddy. So, you really... It, I, I think you're starting to understand why I talked more hunting the first two times. Because <laughs> mm, it all fits. It all kind of fits together. Yeah, and and because, frankly, it's a lot more straightforward. <laughs> so, um, so, so this, I think, I, I think you can give me a straightforward answer on, on this question, which is back to the food piece. As we, we talked, kind of, you, you, you were talking about how we can think about how diverse of options there are when it comes to developing the shape of your plot and the location of your plot based on all the different things that are very specific to different situations. But something here that I've heard you talk a lot about is once you do decide on the right shape and the right location, now you're actually planting a food of some kind. And when you're choosing what to plant, I've seen lots of times you recommend a, what you call like a smorgasbord type of effect where you have a lot of oh, diversity. Oh, we're going this direction. Yeah. <laughs> So, so can you can you tell us why that's important and what you mean by that? Because now we're actually planting something. This is something that people always have questions. Almost the most common yep. food plot question is, what should I plant? What should I plant? And, of course, there's a lot more to it than just buying a piece or a bag of seed that's got a big buck on it. Um, can you just walk us through your, your thought process there and then this whole sure. smorgasbord deal? It all comes back to the whole, okay, food sources are changing dynamically over the course of seasons. You got those those late planted soybeans, man. There's those ones that that first week of season they're still perfectly green. Oh, geez, go hunt them, because at that point those those deer are going to be all over those green soybeans. But now they start to yellow. Oh, geez, this isn't so good. Oh, and geez, the acorns are dropping now too. Hey, I'm going to go shift into the woods to feed on some acorns. Um, well, and oh, there happens to be an alfalfa field over here, so I'm going to eat some alfalfa too. Oh, geez, now we got a couple frosts. Now that alfalfa isn't quite as good, and the acorns, most of the good ones are cleaned up, and now we just have the wormy ones. But oh, that corn, that corn's getting nice and dry now, high in carbs. And you know, geez, either the rut's going, or it's about to gum, or it's done, and I need fat because I just lost 25 to 30% body weight during the rut. You, know, you, you have different biological needs and the changing ecosystem all occurring at the same time, making it so there is not that one thing that you can plant that I'm aware of. And boom, this is what these deer are going to want every day, all the way through season. So how do you counteract that? You offer them a bunch of stuff. So go back to, we were talking edge feathering along that uh, <clears throat> along that access trail to serve as a screen. Okay. Well, you know what else it does? It produces an awful lot of food. So now that we've got this food plot in, let's go ahead and edge feather a five-yard band around that food plot of those safe trees that we can go ahead and drop down to ground level. We're, we're doing a couple, we're killing a couple birds with that stone right there. We're making it so that Mr. Big, when he walks by, 50 yards in the woods, and he looks out in that food plot. Oh, wait, he can't look out in that food plot. He actually has to stick his head in to check. Since we're hunting that food plot, we really want him to do that. Um, <clears throat> besides, even if we're not hunting it, it's wasting his time having to go in and check that food plot. Well, as long as I'm there, I might as well work a scrape or two. Okay. Um, <clears throat> you know as well as I do that hunting oftentimes comes down to that 30 minutes. 
the first and last, outside the rut, the first and last 30 minutes of the day of legal shooting light. If I can go ahead and waste 15 minutes of him doing that stuff here, awesome, because then he's not doing it over on the neighbors during legal shooting light. Um, And at the same time, all those tops now are down at ground level. I don't care if we are talking the richest farmland in Iowa or northeastern or northwestern lower peninsula of Michigan. Deer eat a lot of browse, no matter what other food options they have. Okay. So we now have another food source here. We have the browse from those tops that are down, the leafy and the leafy growth and the buds, you know, over winter, as well as, hmm, we opened up a five-yard band along the edge of this food plot, so it's getting sunlight, so now we have cool season grasses and weeds and all sorts of regrowth. We just created a salad bar for them surrounding our plot. And at the same time, we made it so that plot gets more sunlight, you know, by taking out some trees that would shade the outer edge. But the outer edge is still going to get more shade and still going to have more competition from trees and stuff. Hmm, what works well there? Culver. So I'll go ahead and slap in a uh, a ten yard bank, a ten yard wide band of clover around the food plot, because that ten yard wide outside band isn't going to produce brassicas real well, isn't going to produce corn real well, isn't going to go ahead and produce soybeans. Sure is going to produce clover well though. So now in the inside of the plot, if, it's, uh, <clears throat> if we're talking a several acre per plot, I've got all sorts of options. I can go with corn, I can go with soybeans, I can go with brassicas, I can go with a combination of the three if I want to. Now, but I'm going <clears> to, <throat> nine times out of ten, I'm either planting honey hole, which is a brassica mix, or I'm planting soybeans or corn in the center of that plot. So now we have three food sources already. We've got the edge feathering and all the salad bar that's creating. We've got the trophy. We've got the clover going out around the food plot in an area where we can't get other most other plantings to really thrive. And in the center of that food plot, we've got either brassicas, corn, or soybeans. Awesome. Now, once we start getting into fall. If it's brass, if it's corn or uh, if it's corn or soybeans I planted, I'll go out there and I'll top seed when those when the leaves start yellowing a little bit. I will do nothing more than throw a hundred pounds per acre of three part cereal rye, one part bin oats, and by bin oats I mean just feed oats, just cheap oats, cheapest oats you can get your hands on. Um, about a hundred pounds an acre, I'm going to throw that right on top of the dirt. Now, just go through with a hand seeder. If it's corn, it's about every fifth throw. I'll go ahead and walk down and just with a hand seeder, hand seeding cereal rye and oats out into this stuff. Because now I've got yet another food source option. And at the same time, and when it comes to brassicas, brassicas, you can go ahead and do spring plantings to get up by you. You may want to seriously consider it. Um, doing spring plantings of brassicas, if you use the right type of brassicas, you can, man, you can have some serious food by fall. Now, it's not quite as nutritious, it's not quite as desirable, but when, hmm, I can go ahead and I can eat swamp sticks, 
where I can eat brassicas that are a little bit over mature. Mm-hmm. Well, brassicas sure sound good in that situation. <laughs> You're down in Iowa, and mm, I can eat overly mature brassicas, or I can eat alfalfa, clover, um, <clears throat> soybeans, or corn. Well, that's not quite as good of an option. Yeah. Okay. Um, but there, so there's a little side bonus side tip. How's that? Uh, <laughs> that's good. Uh, most times, I'm planting brassicas in August. When those brassicas get up about, oh, four to six to eight inches, I'm going to go ahead and top seed that same three-part cereal rye, one-part bin oats, about 100 pounds per acre, you know, right on top of the dirt into that brassica as well. The whole reason behind that is now... <clears throat> I don't care if we're talking brassica, we're talking corn, we're talking soybeans. They can only, with, you know, you eat them, they're gone. Okay? They're not like a clover that keeps growing back over and over and over. Um, <clears throat> so those more candy crops, they've got a limited lifespan. But, and especially if you're only planting an acre or two of it up by you there, that ain't, that ain't probably even going to make it through the rut. The grains the brassicas probably would but the grains probably won't even make it through the rut but that's okay because when the grains are gone i still have oats and well the oats are probably froze out by then but i still have cereal rye out here and that cereal rye doesn't freeze out so now you add and then i'm going to go ahead and i'm going if i'm especially if i'm talking a northern state up by you even with all that water around there i'm going to go ahead and put in a couple water holes on that food plot but i'm going to put definitely a water hole by one of the stands in a safe wind direction so now i have food and water and then what the heck i'm going to go ahead and slap in half dozen fruit trees and maybe even a couple uh, dungston or oaks as well add it all up and why am I going to go anywhere else to eat versus now look at just planting that opening in soybeans soybeans great food choice but hot as heck up until those leaves yellow once those leaves yellow even up even up by you where there isn't tremendous uh, food options in the area those leaves yellow they're going to be shifting to something else for a while now they go ahead and they dry out and harden. Now they're going to shift back. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I don't want them shifting around. I want to offer them everything they could possibly want in one location because that is going to make them so much more predictable. It's not even funny. Mm-hmm. Now, when it comes to planting, another thing, I mean, there's there's so much information out there online as far as the basics of how to plant something like clover or brassicas or whatever. There's plenty of step-by-step instructions of how to do this. Um, we don't need to cover that. But but one specific example I've heard you talk about, I think is, is kind of unique and worth mentioning, and it's your poor man's no-till way of planting a food plot. So if you don't have all the big equipment... Um, the way you recommend putting in some type of food plot without that big equipment, I thought was worth touching on. Um, if I'm in that situation, can you talk us through that poor man's no-till? Sure. Uh, you, you have in your area, and I'm, this actually feeds into this, um, in your area you have the disadvantage of a shorter growing season. But you have the advantage of higher, I mean, 
higher monthly rainfall averages, lower monthly temp, average temps than Indiana per se. Okay. Um, how one of the bigger things I learned is, man, these northern states' food plots are easy. <laughs> they are. Um, <clears throat> and this method is going to work better in your northern states because the daylight temperatures during the during the hot season aren't getting as hot, and we tend to have more monthly annual precipitation. Okay. Um, if you're going to if you're going to be talking Indiana, Iowa, Missouri, Illinois, um, there you need you really need to focus this technique on lower areas that get adequate moisture. You try doing what I'm about to describe up on a ridge top, a dry ridge top, it isn't going to work real well. But really, all it is is using using the weeds to go ahead and blanket the seed between the dirt and the weed. It, the seed itself doesn't care if it's if it's covered with dirt or if it's blanketed by a combo of dirt and dead weed. So what I'm doing is I'm going in, <clears throat> I'm top seeding this area with nine times out of ten, uh, just a hand seeder, because there's a reason that I'm not working the dirt in this area. Um, but, you know, it's a great trick for people that don't have equipment big equipment. Um, a, Ferminator, a Ferminator is the best ATV implement I've ever used in my life. But you don't have to have one to put in a food plot. You can go out there and do nothing. You can put in a food plot with nothing more than a backpack sprayer and a hand. Well, heck, you wouldn't even need a hand seeder. You could throw them out by hand if you really wanted to, but I'd suggest getting a hand seeder. So you go to this area. You do nothing more than spray it with Roundup or a generic equivalent. As a side note, please do not buy this from a chain store. Instead, go to the local co-op, and they won't have a bottle that's that, that's small enough for your use, but it's okay. It's It keeps. And you're going to be able to buy enough Roundup to last you for 20 years for less money than you're going to be able to buy it down at the big box store. They rip you off on chemicals at big box stores so bad it's beyond ridiculous. Um, but just go in there, spray it. You can top seed right after because Roundup is actually a contact herbicide, meaning that it has to come in contact with actively growing plant uh, tissue, be absorbed into that plant for it to work. You can, heck, you could soak. I'm not suggesting anyone does this, but you could soak seeds in Roundup before you plant them and they're still going to germinate because it's not going to go, it can only affect living plant tissue. Okay. Um, so I'll go ahead right after I spray, I'll go ahead and throw the brassicas or clover. Uh, you need to use small seed varieties for this type of stuff to work well. Um, I'll throw brassicas, clover right on top of the dirt, and nine times out of ten I'm walking away right then. If if this is an area where I'm worried isn't going to get enough moisture, what I'll do is I'll come back in about oh, a week or two. Uh, I won't seed right then. I'll just go ahead and spray. I'll come back in a week or two before all the weeds are falling down, but yet they're dead now. Toss the seeds and just fashion some type of a drag. <laughs> 
you know, to drag the weeds down to create the blanket. But the, a person, the, the biggest, really the biggest key in all this is just the realization that we're not, we're not cash cropping here. We're not trying to create a cover photo for Farm Digest Weekly. All we're trying to do is create enough food for deer. Weeds are oftentimes, most weeds are deer food, at least during various stages, growth stages of their life. Now, oh, what we really have to worry about isn't so much weeds, but grasses. Grasses, they, they're our enemies. They're what ends up choking stuff out and getting ugly and all that good stuff. But a few weeds in food plots, who cares? As I said, that's deer food. Now, um, and... You take that approach, you can get food in all sorts of ways. My, and I'd love to take credit for this idea. My brother actually is the one who first thought of it and started doing it. Um, his his ground has a bunch of uh, has a bunch of swamps. Okay, on it. What he does is in those swamps they fill up. Uh, they're just little pockets. They fill up in spring. And over summer, they slowly recede till the time you get to fall. All he does around those swamp edges is toss uh, right on top of the dirt, toss the cereal rye oats mix I was talking about. And just be be creative. There, all you need to do is get enough food out there for deer. It doesn't have to look. If you're trying to make your food plots look like a look like your neighbor's farm fields. There's nothing wrong with that, but you sure don't have to. Is there is there anything else that you do when it comes to food plots that um, that helps take things above and beyond or that maybe is a little unique beyond just the basics of getting something to grow? Is there anything that you're doing that's kind of next level that we haven't touched on on the food plot side? The big thing is licking branches. Uh, uh, go ahead and... Well, let's say big things. When you're laying this stuff out, okay, that edge feathering, awesome. You just created a nice little thick band around this, around the food plot. Well, there's especially a year or two after that when it really starts growing up. There's no reason that you can't cut a trail through that stuff where you want the deer to enter and exit. It's not going to mean every single deer is entering and exiting there now, but. If it's the buck you want to kill, that's all that really matters. Um, Putting that, going ahead and putting a scrape tree 20 yards out in front of your stand with licking branches pointed back towards you. You can either plant a tree and protect it until it gets to that stage where the licking branches are about nose level to deer, or you can go ahead and cut a tree. Cut it off, dig a hole two and a half, three feet in the ground and plant it. Now, if you're going to go ahead and go that route, and when now when it's planted, you've got the branches right about at nose level to deer pointing back towards the stand again, you know, because that's going to help both draw them and position them for the shot. You don't want to, if you're going to go that route, use hardwoods, because softwoods break too easy. Or something I started messing with this past year is just taking treated fence posts, slapping a, slapping a chunk of a... Uh, <clears throat> two by ten on top of it, drilling some holes in it, attaching some U-bolts and putting putting those out in plots. Now all I have to do each year is replace the branches that the U-bolts are holding with 
new cut branches. You know, but what I'm really getting at here is again creativity. Make it so that that food plot has a ridiculous amount of licking branches, sitting right at nose level. You know, I'll go ahead and uh, <clears throat> on one of them more often than not. I'll go ahead and slap out a magnum scrape dripper with some golden scrape, trying to chum the area just to start with. You don't absolutely have to do that, though. If you don't want to go out and get a magnum scrape dripper and spend money on scent, don't. But get those licking branches down at nose level. So now I'm creating as much of a social hub in this food plot as I am a food source. And I'm laying it out where, hmm, okay, when that buck is working that scrape tree, safe wind, taking his attention away from me within shooting distance. I got all day to come to full draw. When that buck is over there drinking in that water source, I've went ahead and backstopped the water source. So he has to be facing broadside or away from me to get a drink. Happens to be in a safe wind location, just like the scrape tree was, within shooting distance of the stand. Put that entrance, that trail through the edge feathering in a safe wind direction 20 yards from the stand so if he comes out on that trail you're killing him think about all these little things you can do not any one of them changes the world you have enough of them together though and it can be a pretty darn big game changer um about the only other random food, food plot tip that i can think of that not everybody in the world already knows, is foliar fertilizers. If you're in a jam, <clears throat> so you go ahead, you put in two acres of soybeans up at your place, and, oh, man, those deer are just hammering the snot out of them. You know, right now, they're just, they're wasting on them. Um, <clears throat> and at the same time, you know, it's starting to get to the point where, where the weed competition is starting to get bad, which is good because those weeds, you can use them to protect your soybeans as they're growing up, but it's getting to the point where they're starting to choke it out. The deer are wiping out the areas where they can get to, and the stuff that can't is choked with weeds. Well, I, gotta, I put off spraying as long as I could to use those weeds to protect those soybeans, but, man, i got to spray now. Well, go ahead and add... Uh, add a foliar fertilizer to that spray. So now what you're doing is you're actually increasing your kill rate by getting those weeds and grasses to absorb even more chemical because they're actively trying to absorb the fertilizer that was sprayed on them along with that chemical, and at the same time you're giving your planting a growth spurt. You're giving it a nice boost of a... <clears throat> nice boost of growth to kind of help you get ahead of the curve a little bit more that that's that's a nice little trick that i mean it's not something that i use every year on every food plot by any stretch of the imagination you know but every year oh i mean i've got a whole bunch of food plots and a whole bunch of different properties every year i'm using it a couple times it's it's just a nice little trick there (laughs) What, what about this scenario? What if I went ahead and I planted soybeans or something in the spring, or maybe I, I planted brassicas in August like we were talking about earlier, but the rain that was supposed to come doesn't. It I get hit with a drought, or maybe the beans just get 
hammered by the deer so much they're never able to really get over that hump and they're just eaten down to the ground and I get to sometime in September and I'm looking at a blank slate like the the plots have failed and what do I do in that scenario cereal rye is a great diaper um it doesn't uh unlike uh unlike oats for example where you plant them it hits a certain temperature and they freeze out now, cereal rye doesn't freeze out. Same with, actually, even winter wheat. If it gets too cold, the winter wheat can freeze out. Um, <clears throat> cereal rye doesn't. It just merely goes dormant. And winter wheat, by the way, is far better than just regular oats um, for being able to handle that. But So what you can do is you can get in there now in September and plant it in grain in either a winter wheat, a cereal rye. I personally, I keep going back to... I keep going back to three-part cereal rye, one-part bin oats. It's the best combo for what I'm trying to accomplish that I can find. You know, the, the oats pop real quick and easy. Um, cereal rye takes a little bit more work to germinate them. But the oats pop real quick and easy, and the second, pretty much the second they come out of the ground, that's when they're most desirable. So they take some initial feeding pressure as the cereal rye starts to get going. As the cereal rye gets going, it ends up that's about the time when the when the oats are starting to die off a little bit, and you get a nice little two punch combo out of the deal. That can go as long as long as that ground isn't frozen. That cereal rye can germinate. Versus a uh, versus you try to if you tried to plant soybeans that time of year you couldn't even get them to uh, couldn't even get them to germinate because soil temperatures have to be uh, have to be up to a certain point before they can. Whereas cereal rye, no, as long as it's not froze, that stuff can germinate. And you can just you can just broadcast that top seed that when there's some rain coming and and that'll be all you need to do probably. You you can, yes. It is. I'm not going to kid you, though. You're going to get a better stand if you actually work the dirt. But so much of this is, is, okay, this is what I really want. Now what can I have? I'm going to get as close to what I really want as I can. But you know what? As I said, I'm going to keep, hopefully I've hammered this enough to get it through. We're not cash cropping here. All we're trying to do is grow some stuff that deer will eat. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't have to look perfect. It doesn't have to be a uniform stand. It doesn't have to be any of that stuff. All it has to do is offer them food that they want. Yeah. Nothing more, nothing less. Yeah. Something is better than nothing. Yes, exactly. So, um, Speaking of which, heck, don't be there more than once over the years. You know, you're hunting back in the timber. Um, and you happen to be hunting a little bit of an opening. Well, you can go ahead and you can go ahead and throw cereal rye and oats right down on the ground of the the forest floor. Do a little raking, and if the leaves are off, it's probably going to come up. <laughs> and it's there's be creative is really what I'm trying to hammer in all this stuff. Don't uh, just because nobody has said you can do something, that doesn't mean you can't. And just because everybody says you can, for the love of God, don't listen to them. If it's not working for you, stop. Yeah. And that that includes me. No matter how many people, including myself, are telling people to do something, if it's not working for you, for the love of God, stop. And no matter how many people are telling you 
that this is a huge mistake. Don't do that. That'll never work. If it's working for you, keep doing it. Because each and every one of us have different experiences, different ways of doing things, different environments we're working in, and everything doesn't work the same for everybody. It doesn't. All somebody like me is doing, really, ultimately, all I'm doing is sharing one of my successes and failures that the people that, in large part, the people that are listening enabled me to have. Now, I'm not pretending that everything I do is the smartest way of doing it or the best. And I'm sure not pretending that everything I do is going to work equally well for everyone else out there. Each of us has to figure out what works for us and run with it and ignore all the white noise that goes along with it. Mm-hmm. And be creative. Don't don't be afraid. I learn, I can tell you, I learn so much more from when I fall on my face than I ever do from when I succeed. Now, failure isn't failure unless you don't learn anything from it. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the most important things to always keep top of mind when it comes to deer hunting because there's going to be lots of quote-unquote failures. But to your point, take something from it, grow from it, and uh, you're going to be in a better you're going to be in a better position afterwards. Speaking of um, to ta- to kind of uh, change course just a bit. Speaking of popular things that people recommend a lot, one of those really really common catchphrases out there is sanctuary you know people all sorts of experts recommend having a sanctuary on your property can you give us your take on sanctuaries and if which i think you do think there's some value to them what's the requirements of a sanctuary how do you make one or make one better um would love to hear about your thoughts on that and really really if you peel the onion I've been talking about sanctuary for a large part of this entire conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, sanctuary, all that means is this is an area that I tend not to go. <laughs> um, it doesn't mean that I'm never going to go there. As a matter of fact, the, the definition, using air quotes here that nobody can see, um, <clears throat> of sanctuary that, that I've come to gather most are talking about is... All right, this area here, you just plain do not go into it for anything other than to retrieve a deer. I, I'm sorry, I think that's ridiculous. How do you, if, okay, your sanctuary, what you're really, in my mind, it always, it always comes back to what am I trying to accomplish? I'm trying to get deer to spend a disproportionate amount of time on my ground. How do I do that? I do that by giving them the best food, the best water, the best um, comfort, the best breeding opportunities, and the best feeling of safety they can get in the entire area. Okay, so if I want them to feel safe, I stay out. But, geez, I can have that area achieve more than just that. Hey, that, that that's good. I'm glad I was able to pluck, pluck that low-hanging fruit of making them feel safe by not going in there. That's easy. But let's give them some comfort. Let's give them some bedding. Let's give them that. How do you do that? You get in there and you do some work. I, I don't think that anybody is doing themselves any favors by never stepping foot into this 100-acre area of their 120-acre property. Okay. Please go in there and scout, improve it, 
you know, just don't spend a ridiculous amount of time in there. You know, try to, what I do is every spring I go in there, I shed, hunt, and scout them. And while I'm shedding, hunting, and scouting these sanctuaries, I'm also looking, okay, how are they using, how are they specifically utilizing this? Can I set up on the outside of it to take advantage of that? Um, their main entrance and exit road. Is there anything I need to do to improve this from a comfort and safety standpoint? Maybe, maybe if I go ahead and plant a bunch of uh, uh, 10 acres of Norway spruce in here, you know, we'll go ahead and space them 15 feet apart between trees and between rows, and we'll stagger the rows so they get even more sunlight. Man, 10 years, that's awesome. Now i got some thermal cover back in here, too. Um, <clears throat> And, oh, geez, there happens to be an absolute killer stand site in here. Wow, I can't, get, I can't get here safe. I can't, but, oh, geez, this is good. You know what? I'm setting up the stand. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to set it up, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to hope, like a son of a gun, that <clears throat> I never have to hunt it. But, you know what? If it gets into, oh, mid-November, and that buck that I'm getting trail camera picture of after trail camera picture of all in the middle of the night, in the dark, if I believe that he's actually bedding back in that sanctuary, hmm, okay, happens to be a great deer weather movement day, happens to be a great day for deer movement as far as the phase of season goes, you're talking during the rot here, you know what, I'm going to go in extra early, I'm going to sit in that sanctuary all darn day or until I kill that thing. The catch is that at max, I'm going to do that two, three times a year. Okay, So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to first establish what I'm actually talking about by sanctuary. It doesn't mean that I never go in here. It doesn't mean that I never hunt it. It means that I try my best not to. And I'm only going in there when it serves a purpose, you know, to do the scouting and work in spring and then come fall because I just can't get it done from the outside. And I really want to take this buck, so I'm going to take one or two swings at it. I treat the majority of just about every property as my definition of sanctuary. Um, I would say that of the deer cover on the properties I have set up over the years, I don't think I've ever suggested anybody hunt more than 20% of their deer cover. Now, what I'm trying, and that's the beautiful, beautiful part about habitat improvement, is we can manufacture these high-odds, low-impact deer stands okay, simply by getting in there with a chainsaw and or a dozer. Now, you do that, and now why do, I, why do I want to hunt deeper in there? I got the same advantage by going 10, 20, 50 yards into the woods. There's no, there's no incentive to go in there deeper still because the best spots I got, I made around the around lower impact areas. Okay, but yet if I still can't get it done, I'm getting pictures of him. He's coming from the sanctuary each night, you know, or a couple times a week, hour two hours after dark. That's telling me that he actually is bedding in that sanctuary. He's living there. But man, he's not coming out. He's not coming out. He's not coming out. He's not. Co Eventually, I'm going to say, forget it. I'm going in there after him. If I can't get it done from the outside, the way I define sanctuary, simply put, 
the areas that I cannot get to safely on that ground, the, the deer cover areas. If I can't get there, if I can't consistently get in and out of that area without disturbing deer, I'm going to make it a sanctuary because by because by hunting that area, it's actually working against my goal of getting deer to spend a disproportionate amount of time on this ground. Now, if you're talking a situation more along the lines of yours, where you're going ahead and creating a, you're not, you're better suited for creating a buck trap than you are for getting bucks to live on this ground. In that scenario, I'm still going to have sanctuaries. I'm going to have sanctuaries so the does stay there because the does are my bait. Um, But in that case, I can actually hunt a very much, a very higher percent of my dirt without negatively impacting me because I don't have Mr. Bigling uh, living there. All I've got to do is make sure that I keep those one or two family groups of does happy. So in that case, I will actually design my sanctuary more, far more around them than anything else. Hmm. But as you can see from all this, again, there's no clear-cut answer. It's, it's remaining rigidly flexible. And just using that one part art, one part science, what am I trying to achieve? And then using the power that we have that deer don't, analytical thought. This is my goal. I'm now going to rely on my own, my own knowledge and creativity to figure out how I can best achieve this. Because if you pick up a book or you watch a television show or a web video or whatever that is telling you, giving you specifics on this is what you need to do to manage your ground. Don't pay a lick of attention because this person either doesn't know what they're talking about or they're trying to sell you something. Because every single situation is different. And if you try to lock yourself into that cookie-cutter approach, it might you may improve things on your property, but I promise you you're not going to come anywhere close to improving them as much as you potentially could. We haven't we haven't talked very much about bedding area improvement, probably because our original example, you know, I already had lots a lot of great cover on sure. on our small property here. But if you have a sanctuary area, if you have some percentage of your property that's hard to hunt, you know that there's deer bedded in there, um, but you want to either expand the amount of quality bedding or you just want to improve whatever's in there, um, other than the things we've talked about already. Is there anything important on the bedding area side of things that you I, want to touch on or that yeah. you uniquely recommend? Um, and really, more than anything, I think the most important thing I can possibly say is right now there's this, oh, I, heck, it's been around for 15 years. But, but lately, it's become with a key person or two real popular to talk about dough factories. Oh my goodness, if you put out any food over summer, what you're going to do is you're going to create a dough factory. And those doughs are going to drive all the bucks away, and you just plain cannot go ahead and improve your ground for anything but deer season without creating this dreaded dough factory that drives all these deer. That's pure 100% ignorant BS. I'm telling you, property, I've, 
I've managed somewhere over, I I've, honestly can't give you an honest answer, but it's somewhere over 30 different properties for multi-year spans. Now, um, <clears throat> almost, almost without exception, there was one, but it was an oddball deal. And, uh, um, but almost without, with the exception of one property I can think of, every single one of those properties ended up holding more deer than the surrounding ground. They all had more does living on them 365 days a year per acre than the surrounding properties. And you know what else they all had? More mature bucks living on them per square acre the entire year long. It's not that there's nothing to this baloney about how, and they offered ridiculous amounts of nutrition. There is nothing legitimate about this idea that if you offer offer nutrition outside of hunting season, that you cannot hold mature bucks. What it all comes down to is property layout. If you improve every inch of your ground, you are not doing yourself any favors. You want dead zones in your property. If you don't, right off the bat, if you don't have dead zones in your property, how are you going to access it? Because every, that means that you've improved every inch. That means there's deer every inch of your ground at times. Now, I don't want that. I want areas that the deer don't want to go because that's how I'm getting in and out. Okay. Um, <clears throat> next, you know, by improving every inch of your ground, what you're doing is you're spreading the does out. It goes back to, goes back to the bedding, and that's why I'm getting into all this stuff. Um, bucks are way more selective when it comes, well, bucks place a much, 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 much higher premium on personal safety than family groups do. Therefore, when, where, when are they most vulnerable? They're most vulnerable when they're bedding. So Mr. Big has the extremely high tendency of putting so much more importance on bedding safety than the family groups do. Family groups in general, you know what, just just give me a place that I can lay down, that I feel somewhat safe, that's close to food because I'm lazy. So what I typically do is I try to stack the dough bedding around the food. And I try to put that food away from known buck bedding areas. I want to leave those buck bedding areas alone because what is true is from what I've seen, it does seem like Mr. Big doesn't really care for a bunch of women and kids running through his bedroom all the time. He wants a man cave. He wants an area that he can pretty much just be left the heck alone and feel safe at the same time. I suspect can't swear this, but I suspect that the reason that he doesn't want the does and fawns around is because they're making disturbances. Now I got to keep where what's that twig snapping there? Oh, geez, it's just a kid again. God dang it, I'm trying to sleep. Um, <clears throat> so go ahead and stack the does around the food. You can do that by plant. Heck, you could do it by planting trees. That uh, um, Norway spruce example I just gave earlier for something else um, to give that security cover. And thermal cover. You can do it with by hinge cutting, a quarter acre area, half acre area, acre area. Uh, 
um, <clears throat> that's relatively flat where the deer would feel otherwise comfortable bedding. Um, <clears throat> in other words, you're not walking by it, you know, within uh, within 50 yards every other day kicking them out. Uh, stack, you can do it with uh, warm season native grasses as well. There's a company out of Michigan, who I get it from, uh, Miscanthus. It's a oriental, it's a <clears throat> perennial, sterile, oriental grass. You go ahead and you plant switchgrass or big blue or Indian up by you, and guess what's going to happen the first or, second, first or second storm that goes through, snowstorm. That stuff's going to be laid flat. But you go ahead and use that miscanthus, and that, although that's pushing, that's actually pushing the growth zone, pushing it, but you might be able to get away with it yet. Um, you plant miscanthus there, that stuff's going to stand up far better. Works great for screening as well. Um, but, but between native grasses or a miscanthus or planting trees or creating hinge-cut bedding areas, I'm going to go ahead and try to stack the does around the food. That's where they want to be anyway. You know, they want to be as close to their food source as they can be while still feeling safe. There's all sorts of talk about creating buck beds. You can go on YouTube right now and see some exceptionally good videos on creating buck beds. And that's good and great and sexy as hell. But I can tell you I virtually I, that I virtually never make them for management. Stamp. I'll make 20, 30 a year, but really, honestly, that's for my own sake, trying to learn what am I missing here? Can I get this to work? Because my experience has been, I have unbelievable luck making a mini little igloo with an entrance and an exit at locations that bucks want to bed. But, man, I make them other places where they don't want to bet, and I maybe get 5% success, and I'm probably exaggerating at that. I think I think the idea of creating buck beds is the most overhyped aspect of all of management. As I said, they work awesome when I make them in spots bucks already want to bed. But guess what? They already want to bed there, and they're already bedding there. So what did I just accomplish? I, I'm, maybe they bed there a little bit more afterwards, but I'll tell you what, I've yet to I've yet to get to a property where that becomes a top priority because there's so many other things that are so much more important. Now, where you, this will work, <clears throat> and when I do go ahead and suggest this from a management standpoint, is when those areas where the bucks would otherwise like to bed, there's something wrong with them. For example, during summer, deer love bedding on overgrown fence lines. You know, bucks do, bachelor groups. Frankly, because they're out of the woods and they don't have to deal with as many bugs and, well, the food's right there, all that good stuff. If that, you go ahead and create some pockets that deer can crawl into in that overgrown fence line, now all of a sudden they'll, they'll use it. Whereas... <clears throat> If it was so thick they couldn't snuggle in there, as is, they weren't before. You take that point that bucks have been <clears throat> betting on for years and years and years. You have a tornado go through. Dump a whole bunch of big oaks on that point to the point 
to the extent that they can't bed there anymore. Now going in there and cleaning that up so they can still bed in there? Oh, heck yes, that's extremely beneficial. But, oh, the dirty the dirty little secret, at least for me, is I, I don't make buck, I hardly make buck beds for management at all. I focus on does. And the reason I'm focusing on does is to keep them away from those existing buck bedding areas. I do that, and that works pretty darn well. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Now, speaking of our mature bucks, and, and one of the goals that many people might have is, is how to get more mature bucks to use your property. Um, I've, I've, I've read about something you call a checkerboard approach to how you take all these habitat things we've been talking about and then you use a checkerboard approach to try to make it a little bit more feasible for multiple mature bucks to set up shop. Can you describe that? Sure can. Um, and what it is is, again, it all goes back to, really, if you think about it, everything we're talking about goes back to one of the first things I said, and that's about goals. If your goal is to, for example, you just want some place for your grandkids to be able to come out and have fun and do some hunting. You know, you're probably better off setting up that 40. So you have one main, you have one grandson who wants to do the setup, one main food source. Because now you're concentrating as many deer on that one main food source as you can. Odds are pretty darn good that every single time that old fella goes out, he's going to see deer. And he's going to come back shaking and he's going to come back all sorts of happy. As you divide up these food sources and bedding areas and such, you're spreading deer out more. You're diluting the concentration effect, making it making it harder to hunt. So you want to you want to figure out where your goal falls on the sliding scale. If you're looking at trying to hold the maximum number of mature bucks on that ground, having one food source, one primary food source, one primary bedding source, one primary water source is not your best choice. Because during most of the fall, at this point, you got the rut going on. Now the bachelor groups have broken up, and you're looking at competition instead of a group of happy-go-lucky idiots like they were all summer long. <clears throat> when that dom and I probably should back up just one second here and talk about dominance just for a split second, and that is because... Everybody thinks of the biggest buck in the woods as your dominant buck. Not necessarily. As a matter of fact, very often not, especially when you're looking at rack. It takes a lot of energy to produce on top of the head. Generally speaking, those bucks that don't have a ridiculous amount of bone on top of their head, they're putting that energy, everything else being equal, they're putting that energy into their bodies instead. Body and attitude is what dominant is where dominance comes from, not rack size. Now, rack size has nothing to do with it at all. It has to do with so much to do with attitude, and then next, can you back it up? And you're your rack. Your rack is nothing more than nothing more than essentially a blunt instrument that you're pushing against. Um, <clears throat> 
soul very often your most your most dominant bucks are not your biggest rack bucks you know very very often um now you have that one food source on that property and here you got the dominant buck and this gorgeous buck that's subordinate that you know just happens to have an extra 20 inches on his head when they end up getting in a fight at that food source and the dominant one chases them off I really want to have a secondary food source on my ground where that buck can shift to yes having the two food sort taking your 40 and dividing it up looking at it as 220s instead of 140 and going ahead and offering the bedding, the water, the food over here on one of them, and the bedding and water and food over here on another one, that does go ahead and make it more challenging for hunting because now you have two options instead of one. But it gives you the potential of holding, more, having more mature bucks set up their dairy-like core areas on your ground than when you have just one because on any single property anywhere out there in the deer country, there is one buck at a time on that ground that's dominant. And if there's two of them that think they are, those two are going to more than not fight it out until one of them leaves or dies. So rather than offering everything in one location, splitting up a property, and offering everything in multiple locations helps reduce social stress. And if we are going to talk about deer management, which is real hard to do on a private land scale, now, um, when, when I talk deer management, I'm not talking anywhere near the management that most people are assuming because, you know what, you got 40 acres of ground, there's only so darn much you can do. But if you're talking management, a huge part of that is social stress. As a matter of fact, it is probably the most ignored topic in in deer management and most horribly misunderstood. Social stress is... Think back to when you were back in high school, grade school, middle school, sometime virtually every one of us got picked on at one point in their life. How bad did you want to walk down those halls? Now, you, I can't speak for anybody else, but I had a, uh, when I was a kid, um, <clears throat> yeah, I shouldn't go into it because it makes me sound real. The, my brother got in a, my younger brother got in a fight with a kid who was in special education who was two years older than me and three years older than him. I made the mistake of trying to defend my brother, and I'll tell you what, you've got an entire class of kids that are older than you that want to beat you up. I was not real comfortable going to school during that. It's the same type of stuff for deer. Look at all the studies out there on health impacts of stress and how they, in humans, and how it leads to so many, such an elevated risk of heart attack and stroke and all this stuff. I, I firmly believe the exact same thing goes on in the deer world. Firmly believe it. That stress, you can see it play out so often when you kill that dominant buck on the ground. That subordinate buck that wasn't making very good jumps from year to year, that next year, look out, buddy. 
because nine times out of ten, he puts inches on his head that he's never put on before. Now, all due to stress. You go ahead, you divide these grounds up, you reduce the stress of the family groups, you reduce the stress of the bucks, and generally speaking, you have happier, healthier deer as a result. And by dividing it up, you help minimize that stress while making it so you can potentially hold more deer. That makes all the sense in the world. And Steve, um, you never, you never fail to, or you never, what's the way, how do you phrase this? You never disappoint is what I'm trying to say. I knew that we would shut up. (laughs) No, but I knew we would get a ton of, of interesting ideas and value from you. And the only thing I regret is that we didn't get to cover than many other things I was hoping to talk about, but but that's because we covered so many other great things, and I don't want to keep you any longer. Because, We've been because talking. Because I never shut up. <laughs> on all these that's your best quality, Steve. Is that you've got lots to share. Um, so I don't want to keep you any longer. I've kept you here for for quite a while already, but I appreciate it so much, Steve. And if people want to to learn more about what you have to say. And they want to either check out your books or your web shows or, or anything else out there. Can you point us in what direction they can go to find all the other things that you're working on? Um, well, I've got two different web shows that I'm doing for deer and deer hunting. They're web shows exclusively. One is Grown Big and the other is Hunt em Big. Um, <clears throat> they're, oh, five to eight minute shows that just cover one, just drill down on one tip. They are aired every Wednesday on Deer and Deer Hunting's Facebook page. I also air them as well on, oh, and then, uh, speaking of shows, uh, co-host Deer and Deer Hunting TV, pretty sure they're on Pursuit again this year. Um, And uh, otherwise, I have, I'm going to go ahead and this year at some point, I'm going to create my own website, which no doubt will be Steve Bartell Outdoors, and have all this stuff on there. But for now, um, another Facebook page, Steve Bartell Outdoors. You know, I post post five uh, tip a day during the work week. You know, 100% free. Well, yeah, 100% free. Actually, all my the companies that I pro staff for. Thank. God for them. Um, they they're sponsoring them, but it's I love the companies I work with. None of them pressure me to say anything about any of their stuff. The Facebook junk really is 100% me just sharing stuff and them being happy to be associated with it. Uh, so for now, I guess that's 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 about it. Um, books. I no longer sell any of any of the books myself. Uh, you can always jump on shop deer hunting uh, deer and deer hunting's website sells two of them, including the management book, and then uh, <clears throat> um, you can get virtually anything off of Amazon by just doing a search on my name there if you're interested. But that said, that Facebook page I'm trying to share all this stuff for nothing it's your audience and I, I imagine at the state you're at in your career you'll be able to understand this and appreciate this 
really like my life. I really, really do. And it is at least 80% due to your audience. Now, they're the ones who allow me to do this stuff. And I'm to the point where I'm dug in as deep as a tick in a coon hound. And they ain't getting me out anymore. And that's because <laughs> of them. <laughs> now, so what I'm trying to do as much as I can is use this phase of my career to say thanks and just dump the dump whatever I think I may have learned from these audiences empowering me to do this stuff for free. And you know, the, I know it sounds kind of silly and cheesy, but honestly, it's the absolute least I can do. This idiot from northern Wisconsin who, who his homeroom teacher had a $20 bet with my freshman wrestling coach that I wouldn't even graduate high school. I'm living my dream because of everybody who's listening to this stuff, and that's never lost on me. Yeah. And talk about humbling. Wow. That is that is pretty awesome. I, I can definitely relate. There's a lot to uh, be thankful for, no doubt about that. And, and I think it's great that you uh, you know continue to give back to to that community. And I, and I know a lot of people have benefited from it. And, and I can I can attest to that the Facebook tips of the day and stuff that you're sharing that is really good stuff, really in depth. You're putting some some really good original content out there on your Facebook page. So to everyone listening, check out the books, check out the web shows, and, and like Steve said, definitely follow him on his Facebook page where it seems like there's going to be more and more good stuff. So Steve. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this for a third time. It, uh, as usual, was great. My, my pleasure, my friend. And that is the end of this podcast. So we'll make this short and sweet. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use if you're not already doing that. And Google actually just released a brand new podcast app that's supposed to be pretty good. So if you use an Android phone... That would be a great way to listen to this podcast in the future. So check that out. Otherwise, hit us up on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for being a supporter. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. First Light has always made the world's best base layers. They're warm, breathable, silent, and odor-resistant. But the women's fit and the gear weren't meeting our demands, so we went back to the beginning and rebuilt everything. Re-engineering the gear with the most dedicated female hunters in mind, First Light modernized the fit and added more sizes, colors, and camo patterns. I personally have been testing the women's gear over the last couple of years, uh, from the mountains in Idaho to the plains in Nebraska, and I feel like the fit especially has landed in a much better spot. It's more true to size. It's not as tight and binding in certain areas like a lot of women's fit. Uh, All of the pieces, to me, got an all-around upgrade. It's awesome to see. So for yourself or as a gift this Mother's Day, pick up First Light's new women's merino wool and get free shipping on all orders containing women's gear. Available now at firstlite.com.